We are returning this morning uh, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 towards the end, and this is just such a great passage. Life for believers in a fallen world is a mixture of heartache and joy, of sorrow and happiness, of success and disappointments. And for the Christian believer, we're told that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Paul was well acquainted uh, with hardship and tribulation in his own life. Uh, he, he told his um, disciple Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. And Paul himself was a magnet for adversity trials, misunderstanding. He was, you know, experiencing um, affliction from at least three different sides. One is from uh, the the Jewish traditionalists who who had rejected uh, Christ as Messiah. The other was from the pagan world who saw the Apostle Paul as a a threat to their pagan belief and to uh, their immoral, idolatrous practices. And then what 2 Corinthians is focusing in on is the threat that, that Paul was experiencing, the, the hardship he was experiencing with the people of God, with these false teachers specifically that had risen up within the Corinthian church and who were undermining Paul's uh, ministry and his credibility as an apostle. Well, in this brief passage, Paul invites us into his own mindset. He shares with us a bit of his own psychology He continues to show us the mindset which enabled him to endure, by God's grace, the most unimaginable hardships. An eternal mindset is what he is describing here, and he shows us how it helps put our difficulties, how an eternal perspective uh, puts our uh, our trials and and challenges in perspective. It motivates us to to seek first God's kingdom and his glory in the present and not lose heart. Would you stand for the reading of God's, uh, God's inspired word? 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, come according to your mercy and kindness, that our hearts and minds might be receptive to your word, a word that comes not from the world, but is from above. May our souls, may our spirit find refreshment and strength through the preaching of your word and by the movement of your Holy Spirit. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Paul announces um, right away that in the back of his mind, 
um, is the problem of suffering. He says, so we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart, which is something you say when you are facing trials and hardship, when you're actually tempted to lose heart, or when others might, you know, wonder or expect you to just kind of give in to the discouragement and, and possibly even to despair. But Paul says, in fact, what is happening in his own life uh, is something of an inverse relationship when it comes to the trials and the difficulties and the suffering. And at the same time, he sees the Lord doing a powerful work within him. Even as he is being threatened from multiple sides, even as he's been called to make great sacrifices, he's experienced terrible suffering, something surprising is also uh, taking place. There's another part of him, his spirit, that has been brought to new life in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And there's that part of him that has been brought to life by the Spirit that is being renewed. It's being strengthened. Day by day. He writes, well, one commentator writes that the outer self, it refers to the believer's existence under the decaying mortality inherited from Adam, while the inner self is the believer's existence, in some sense, already in the new age that has been inaugurated in the present by Christ. The outer self is life in this fallen world. It's life in a mortal body. It's especially, you know, the the physical experience of aging. Paul had good reason to lament that his outer self was wasting away. Not only was his body showing signs of wear and tear due to just getting older, but the difficulty and persecution he endured would have made him old well before his time. You know, you can, you've seen those movies where someone has been whipped um, and, and they take their shirt off and you see their back and it's just completely this gnarl of tangled scars. I can only imagine that would have been the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, he writes of far greater labors, quote, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And uh, night and day I was adrift at sea. And then he talks about the threats he had to negotiate on a regular basis. He writes on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You can clearly see that Paul's living his best life now. <laughs> and we can also say there, there is something very unique about Paul's calling. This is This is not the calling that God has for every follower of Jesus, not by a long stretch. But Paul, he's sharing with us, I have suffered intensely. And I suffer, you know, if you read this, it sounds like there's almost hardly a break 
you know, in terms of whether it's physical in nature or whether it's just the mental strain of dealing with the threats and with the uh, burdens of just normal Christian ministry. But something else is taking place. The inner person, his heart, his spirit or soul, that which was brought to life by the Holy Spirit, that which Paul later describes as the new creation, that part of him is being uh, strengthened and renewed. And he describes this renewal when he prays in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he, that is God, may grant you, Ephesians, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants the people he's ministering to to experience the strength and the power of the spirit in a similar way in which he had experienced that same grace. In some sense, what Paul is saying is that there is this inverse relationship because when we're struggling, we, we feel ourselves to be losing, to be under pressure. We feel ourselves to be, um, uh, to be in a situation in which our human strength, our, our human abilities are, are just not up to the task. We just can't handle the situation. When we experience grief and sorrow and fear and sleepless nights, and sometimes um, there are times where we do experience that, that kind of extreme anguish in our souls because of circumstances that are going on around us, we know that we need God. And it's at those times especially that we know that without the Lord's help, we will sink. We may not survive. We know ourselves to be weak. And what Paul says is that when we are, when we are weak, when we know ourselves to be weak, that's when God does his best work. That's when his power is especially evident in and through our lives. And so what Paul is saying is from his own experience, there's this kind of inverse relationship, at least potentially so. It was true for Paul, potentially for all believers, that even as the circumstances weigh us down, that's when the grace of the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, so often does its most amazing work in and through us. Paul makes this explicit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He writes, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the great Old Testament passages written to an entire nation that was beleaguered, that was facing an exile um, uh, in Babylon. In Isaiah 40, the prophet writes this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
Because the Lord does his best work often when we are feeling entirely weak. Paul later writes in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But Paul shows us that for him, uh, there was not simply the experience of God's grace sustaining him through hard times. His renewal was connected with a specific mindset. He was renewed by the hope of eternal glory. Verse 17, Paul writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So now he's letting us into his mind. He's letting us, he's showing us, this is where I put my mind. This is what I meditate on so often when I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. Paul's perspective is that God is using the difficulties of life in a fallen world with all its sorrows, disappointments, and suffering to in some sense prepare us for the world that is to come. And it's also noteworthy that in chapter 1, verse 8 specifically, Paul describes the overwhelming nature of the affliction which he experienced in Asia. Listen to this language. He writes, for we were so utterly burdened, that is, weighed down, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, four chapters later, verse 17, he's describing those same afflictions as light and momentary. In contrast to what? To another burden, to another weight that is, in in fact, helping bring about renewal. Well, what is that weight? It is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here, the Apostle Paul is thinking of the glory that will one day be revealed, a glory that is largely invisible to our eyes, It's a glory that is already been planted in the world through the Spirit. It's a a glory that's already at work in the hearts and lives of uh, Christian believers and followers of Jesus. The weight of glory is something that Paul feels, but he can hardly put it into words. All he can say is that it's beyond description. And part of this inability to describe um, is the sense if we could, you know, there, there, there is this common theme through the Old Testament that if a person were truly to see the full glory of God, that they would perish. There's a sense when Paul's describing this, this glory that is to be, this glory that is to come, that it is so brilliant. It's just one, it's unimaginable, it's impossible to describe with the limitations of human language, but it's a glory that in our present state, we could not bear such a massive burden of of real, unfiltered, undiluted, pure, divine glory. But one day we will be able to experience and to enjoy that glory in all its beauty, in all its splendor, in all of the ways that it captures the imagination as we are um, made new and given new glorified bodies. 
in our present life, there's no such thing as undiluted, pure glory. Or for that matter, the reverse is true. There's no such thing as undiluted, uh, uh, pure misery. The most glorious experiences in our present life are tinged with the sense that we still wish there was more. Even when we're experiencing some great kind of mountaintop um, uh, experience, there's still the sense, oh, I, I wish there was more. In our best conversations, in our best, you know, um, uh, experience of art and music and literature and movies and so forth, even at the greatest, there's this long, oh, I wish there was more. And part of the tinge that we experience in this life with the, the, the glories that are connected to this world is just the reality that what, however amazing the glories of this world may be, we know they won't last. Uh, just as a simple illustration is you go on vacation to some place, you know, a beach, some kind of tropical location that really is like paradise. And you're just able to re- relax and take in the sunshine and, and just the freedom and the beauty and, and good food. And, and it's so wonderful. But what's the problem? Well, it ends on Saturday. <laughs> And then it's back to ordinary life. It's back to work. It's back to the to-do list. It's back to all the, the needs that have to be accomplished when you return. Even that glorious vacation experience is still tinged with this sense that it's not pure. It's not perfect. And it can't be because it's not eternal. But the, the, the good thing is this is also true of our most miserable experiences, even when we are facing sickness or some loss or disappointment or grief and sorrow, is it not true that even in the midst of those painful situations, there's still blessings that are present in our lives? There's the blessings of other people that are often present with us as we go through those very difficult times. And like that vacation, very often there's also the sense that Whatever misery we may be experiencing, it's not forever. And when we see that there is, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, it has a great way of, of taking away from the pain of that difficult um, experience so that it's not pure misery. Well, Paul um, describes this, this glory eternal weight of glory. It's beyond all comparison to really anything in this world. And and it's so hard for us to to really wrap our minds around this idea because this world is so real to us. And I think, you know, this is just an anecdotal thing, but, but as I get older, it feels like it's increasingly real to me, not less. But this idea of this glory, this weight of glory that's beyond all comparison, beyond all description, it's a sense, and, and C.S. Lewis puts his finger on this, is that when we enter into that glory, it will be so real. This life, it'll just seem like a dream. Like, did it even really happen? So real will the experience of glory be in the world that is to come in the new heaven and in the new earth. 
Well, there are reasons why Paul describes this as his, his mindset is on this, this weight of glory. One, is, one reason for this is because God himself is what makes it so glorious. God himself is incomprehensibly glorious. To live in the direct light of his presence and the direct presence and fellowship of the Trinity will be uh, an experience of just unbelievable, incomprehensible love and beauty and life. And the second reason why this glory and is so uh, incomparable to anything in this life is for the, the reason that it is eternal. It is an eternal glory. In this world, you know, the good and the bad are mixed. Good and evil are often um, experienced together. But in the world to come, it will be a pure and perfect glory. It will not be tinged. It will not be mingled with any kind of evil, with any kind of effects uh, of the effects of sin uh, or, um, or death. And part of the glory is that there will be this knowledge that it will never end. It will be an unchangeable situation. Let's just talk about eternity for a moment. Because <laughs> we don't, so... But the old-timey illustration is if you, you know, if you draw... If you were to pull a string and, and from one end of the room to the other, how, and, and that string represents eternity... How much of that string is our life that, you know, 60, uh, 80, 100 years? How much of our life uh, is on that, that eternal string? It's just a dot. It's just a point on that line that stretches from one wall to the other. Now, here's what Paul is saying is, a lot of, um, because we're so focused on this life, we live our life for that dot. And what Paul is saying is he's living life for the, the, the line that stretches all the way across. He's living his life for the sake of eternal glory. Or again, to kind of wrap your minds around, you know, what is eternity? Someone else uses the illustration of the, the phoenix, that mythological bird that uh, rises from the dead, rises from the ashes every thousand years. Well, imagine that every thousand years when the phoenix uh, rises again, that it goes and takes one grain of sand from the seashore. Now, consider how long it would take for that phoenix every thousand years to remove just one, uh, one grain of sand so that all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world were finally removed. Well, the person who came with this illustration said, once all the sand has been removed, eternity is just beginning. That even, that, you know, trillions of years perhaps, is still only a dot in light of the line of eternity. And so the foolish thing is, is that so many of us are living for the dot without any regard for um, uh, the, the eternal uh, world that is to follow. Life in the presence of God, of Christ, Life in the presence of all the saints 
will be perfect in part because it will never end. And the reverse is true. The worst part of hell, no matter how we understand the level of suffering, the worst thing is a lack of hope of it ever changing. It's not just a sentence for a hundred years or even a thousand years, not even after a billion years. There's no hope of that hellish situation, uh, that anguish of the soul coming to an end. And so Jesus himself, when he's talking to his disciples, he says this, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And just as an aside, it is true, as as a lot of commentators have observed, that um, Jesus, more than any other writer, including the Apostle Paul, speaks of eternal judgment. He speaks of hell more than any other biblical writer. Now, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be all the best, all the most beautiful aspects of the current world. And it's interesting that the images that the scriptures use to describe the world to come, and this is a a quote from an author, Richard Sturch, and he writes this in terms of these these biblical images of heaven. He, He writes, they are images of a strong reality. Heaven is like the literal heaven, the sky. It is like a garden, like a city, a garden city. It is like music, like a solemn liturgy of praise. It is like a feast, like the goal of a pilgrimage, like kingship, priesthood, and a victory uh, celebration. To try to reduce such images to a literal and prosaic level is folly, not only artistically, but theologically. And at the center of each image is he who is the heart and source of all reality, God himself. God's presence with his people is the heart of their reward. And since God is the supreme goodness, surely to see and to know him is our supreme bliss. Paul says, I am living for eternity, and that perspective brings meaning. It makes all the suffering I've experienced, I can describe it as light and momentary in relation to the glory that is to follow. So Paul says, given the reality of eternal glory, He exhorts us in the present, verse 18, to fix our eyes on what is unseen. He puts it this way, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul tells us not to be so fixated on the things of this world that are temporary, that are passing away. Spiritual resilience comes as we cultivate a heavenly, eternal mindset. And this means we can't be so focused on the things that from an eternal mindset will no longer matter. They belong to time, not to eternity. And this especially includes all things that are related to sin, that are related to worldliness, that are related to greed and materialism and immorality, or looking for our happiness in the things of this world. Clearly, these things are of the world that is seen, of the world that is passing away. 
And by fixing our eyes on the unseen, it's to focus on the things that will have eternal value. What are those things? Well, Jesus puts it this way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And in Mark, he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to forfeit his life? But seek first the kingdom of God. What does it mean to focus on the, on the unseen? To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus says, and all these things, the things that you need in this life, they will be added to you. Live by faith. In Philippians, Paul writes, their end, he's talking about um, uh, uh, non-believers. Um, he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And that's what he's calling us here to avoid, setting our mind on just earthly things. But our citizenship, Paul continues, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's just simply saying, don't live for the dot. That's the scene. Live for the line, the line of eternity. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this is where this gets a little tricky because there are certain things that we do in life, like our jobs, for instance, that it's all about our attitude as we do them. There are lots of things that we just need to do within this life. And it's not that it's connected to this life that makes it good or evil. It's our attitude. And and the question is, why are we doing what we do? Is it just for our sake to make a name for ourselves? Is it just for our own individual pleasure? Or is it all that we do, our jobs, working, our our getting uh, with other people, the way we use our money, the way we invest our money, is it for the glory of God? And you see, when we're doing it for God's glory, all those kind of ordinary aspects of life, then they are used for that which is unseen, that which has eternal value. Whose glory are you living for? The Lord's Prayer gives us a template for, in part, what does it mean to focus on the unseen? The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, which reminds us of the importance that part of the unseen is pursuing an intimate relationship with God our Father, with the triune God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is the desire for God's holy character and for that holy character to become increasingly true of our character. So not only do we pursue a relationship with God, but we pursue being the kind of person he wants us to be, being the kind of person that resembles God, that looks like Christ. That is pursuing the unseen. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This points us in the direction of seeking the interests of God's kingdom, making that kingdom stronger and more visible in the world in which we live. We live, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.
These are all ways that we begin to live for the line and not for that little point, that dot. We need to cultivate an eternal mindset. An eternal mindset helps put our difficulties and trials into perspective, and it motivates us to want to see the kingdom of God made visible, and it encourages us not to lose heart. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we thank you for the, the incisive, the sharpness of the words of the Apostle Paul. Surely they're words that come out of a, a crucible of suffering, of deep uh, suffering. And we thank you, Lord, for these truths, and we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would use them to shape us, to strengthen us, to cause us to seek your kingdom in all that we do for the sake of your great name, for the sake of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.